Today's show is brought to you by Airtable, the all-in-one collaboration platform. Producing quality content at a high volume is hard, and with newsfeed algorithms constantly shifting and audience platform preferences constantly changing, media companies need to stay agile to be at the top. That's why content production teams at places like Time use Airtable. It's flexible enough to adapt to your process, but powerful enough to keep everything on schedule and let creative people be creative. Visit Airtable.com slash Digiday today to get $50 in free credits. Welcome to the Digiday Podcast, Can Edition. I'm Brian Morrissey. I'm here in the Riviera. Um, I'm going to be speaking with media executives throughout the week. Um, I am joined today by John Slay. John is the Global Chief Revenue Officer. I think it's global, right? Chief Commercial Officer, but Chief yeah, Commercial Officer. Well, global. we say, yeah. we say yeah. revenue in the United States. Um, and we're going to be talking about all sorts of different issues. John, this is your first podcast. It is my first podcast. Are you yeah. nervous at all? Uh, no, I'm entirely relaxed. You're making me feel really <laughs> relaxed in this beautiful surroundings here in Cannes. Yeah, which is actually my apartment. Yeah, right? it is. Yeah. Um, which is slightly weird for me, but I, I'm okay with it. It's weird for both of us. Let's talk about the pivot to paid. All these people are all of a sudden discovering that, you know, news businesses in particular need, amazingly, multiple revenue streams. It's not just advertising. It is staggering. You must find this a little bit amusing um, coming from uh, a publication that um, has always been, you know, paid and ads. Yeah, Uh, we've always had a mixed um, business model. Um, I'm not sure amusing necessarily. I think it's great. I think it's brilliant. It means the conversations that we're having with other publishers, uh, with other partners within the industry, whether it's the the platforms or uh, or, or other technology companies, are, are much more constructive because we're all pretty much on the same page now. And you know, it makes a lot of sense to us that um, why why wouldn't we charge for great journalism? It puts pressure, I think, on other publishers to ensure that their journalism is worth paying for. Uh, and there's a whole bunch of stuff you've got to learn around that. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the infrastructure that supports it for payment, uh, how you market to potential subscribers, how you hold on to them. So there's a lot of learning to do. Uh, and we're spending a lot of time talking with other publishers right. as well. But it's, yeah, it's a great thing. So you have to become like a real marketing company in some yeah. ways. So that's, I guess you, you mentioned I'm chief revenue officer. I suppose that's the, the one of the differences in my role to perhaps a traditional chief revenue officer. I'm not just there to make ad money, I'm responsible for the subscription business as well, the B2C part of that. So one part of me is selling advertising and one part of me is buying advertising. And I yeah. run a marketing team and a sales team. So, so. explain for um, just a bit why you know having an ad business and having a subscription business are not in conflict. I, th- I think the received wisdom generally is if you put up some paywalls around your content, you're going to throttle the life out of your inventory and you're going to see By definition, a, hu- a huge reduction in yeah. your in your user base so so what we found was there was a, a, a small reduction in our traffic the traffic that we lost wasn't meaningful traffic as far as the ad business was concerned it wasn't traffic that was coming back on a repeat basis it was kind of one-time wonders uh, and what we got in return from our subscribers that helps advertisers is a huge amount of data from that subscription process that we can pass back to our advertisers to help them with better targeting, better attribution, uh, and better analytics. So that allowed us to drive our yield up. So yes, we lost a little bit of volume, um, but the value that we created by having a business um, mm-hmm. 
that's pivoted entirely around data for both subscriptions and advertising more than made up for that that small loss in in volume we've written about this before about structurally whether or not i know in in the uk you use commercial instead of revenue but but whether structurally publications put the subscriptions part under the chief revenue officer who traditionally has been about ads yeah well because uh, you could create some conflict there so, so there is sometimes conflict there. I guess it's helpful to have one person who's responsible for balancing that conflict. So I'll give you an example. We replatformed FT.com, uh, let me see, about two years ago. And speed was a really important part of our, our work because we absolutely could figure out um, that if our website was fast, people stuck with us for longer and read more content and got more value from their subscription. So actually we were able to isolate what every one second of latency Uh, caused us in terms of potential revenue gain or revenue loss. So when it comes to thinking about how many tags, how many pieces of code, how many ad tech vendors we want to work with and what latency that's going to cause the page, we can actually have a fairly smart conversation and I can have that conversation with both teams, marketing and with sales, to understand and say, well, what would be the incremental ad revenue benefit from adding another three different ad tags to the page versus what's that going to do for subscriber engagement? Uh, when we look at speed as a, as a common metric. So actually having the two pieces of the puzzle together allows us to have far more productive conversations, not two sides of the business mm-hmm. in a battle with one another. So we, we haven't found that it's created any difficulties far from it. And in fact, a lot of the expertise that we have in our ad sales team when it comes to ad tech, we've become, I think, extremely proficient in that space in the last um, five or six years, is really applicable to the kind of business that we want to do when it comes to buying advertising to support our subscription business. So there's a great symbiosis between those skills uh, and those professions. Have you cut down on the number of ad tech vendors you're using? We have marginally reduced the number of ad tech vendors that we're using, yes. Okay, explain that. So we took a look at uh, our potential exposure under GDPR and we looked at the number of ad tech suppliers that we wanted to work with that were meaningful to us and were a core part of our business. And then we looked at the other suppliers that were perhaps providing some bids to our site um, that actually we couldn't get a good enough relationship with or a close enough relationship with or didn't merit establishing that degree of relationship in order to feel comfortable about the liability that that might bring us under GDPR. So we said, actually, let's just look at the maybe six to eight ad tech partners that we work with that are really important to us and let's make sure our relationship there is is mm-hmm. really really clear and for everything else well we'll cut that loose for a little while see if we notice any big difference and want to pick it back up again we're very early into that process um, so I would say um, no conclusions drawn yet um, but certainly no uh, huge downward swings in our mm-hmm. in our revenue as a consequence let's stick with GDPR I was going to get to it later um, being in Europe it's it's a, it's a required topic um, and it's a required topic in media now, honestly. Um, did you see a big drop as far as programmatic demand when GDPR came into effect? We did, yeah. In the first 48 hours, I would say. Uh, I would say within five days, it had pretty much got back up to, uh, to where we'd expected it to be. So no material impact right now, I would say. Yeah. I mean, judging from your, your tweets, I'm a follower, and oh, you seem to be optimistic that GDPR will ultimately be a good thing for publishers, even if there is short-term dislocation. Is this an accurate reading? Yeah. So I think uh, if you ask any of my colleagues uh, at the FT, they're probably sick of me hearing hearing me say short-term pain, 
longer term gain. I think GDPR, if you look at it in terms of both the letter and the spirit of the regulation, uh, is about um, trust between um, uh, the, the consumer and the publisher um, and or the processor of that data. I think publishers who have a direct relationship perhaps through a subscription business, are in a great position to establish what that trust and transparency looks like between themselves and those consumers. Uh, and I think consumers are far more likely to grant consent to publishers who, uh, and to companies who they know and who they've heard of. Um, it's a lot easier for us to say to one of our customers, will you give us consent to use your data? And here's the responsible way and the clear mm-hmm. way that we're going to use that data than it is for a another one of 400 different ad tech companies to gain that consent. So on that basis, if you follow what the letter and spirit of GDPR says, I think that's a net gain for for those with a direct relationship. Did you see the the Washington Post's um, approach to GDPR? You basically land on the page and they say, okay, you can subscribe to the Post um, or you can have the European Union experience, which is um, no ad tracking. Or, you know, you can visit for free and yeah. consent to all ad tracking. I don't think this is legal. I'm not a, a DPO, but I don't think this is legal under GDPR. But from a, a perspective of people need to understand the value exchange, I, I have some sympathy to that approach. Yes. Yeah, I, I, I would agree with you. I'm not entirely sure it's entirely uh, compliant. No, it's that, not compliant. In that sense. It's totally not compliant. Uh, but I think it's it's a novel way to do it. I think it's a, you know, see if it works for them. I think it's a lot better than other publishing groups that I've seen from the US who've just blocked just shut down. traffic LA entirely. Times. Yeah, I mean, the, the, all the Tron yeah. sites. I was trying to read something on the Chicago Tribune yesterday. Um, I can't remember what it's about, but I mean, it, it, I, I got no further than, I'm sorry, you're a European citizen, get out of here. And I just thought, you know, I think you could maybe do a little bit yeah. better than that. I guess they've done the maths and... But yeah, uh, if, you it look at it, if you look at it like, you know, very little um, programmatic revenue, basically, I mean, that's what they're using. Um, from Europe, you do the risk calculus and doesn't make sense for some. I know Hearst yeah. uh, and, and, you know, some some of the Hearst newspaper properties, they've just totally shut down. But some magazine properties have been like, we have to get we have to get compliant on yeah. this or close yeah. to compliant. I mean, I, I think you, you make a really interesting point. I mean, there are so many different interpretations. I think this is, this is you know, I believe in the spirit of, yeah. of GDPR. I think what I find... Can you say 100% with 100% clarity that you are compliant, the Financial Times is compliant with GDPR? I can say, oh, this sounds like a statement that'll come back and haunt me, doesn't it? I can say with 100% surety that we're pretty certain we're about as compliant as we could be (laughs) right that's the issue and that is the issue and that's what i was going to say and there are lots and lots as you see as you saw from all the emails that came into your inbox in the weeks leading up to may the 25th 101 different interpretations of what this regulation could mean so i think over the next six months it's going to be really interesting there was a bunch of hand waving basically going on um in order to distract people saying hey well because if you read gdpr there is sort of points for trying like they want yeah. to see that you tried yeah, um, and, and that's taken into account. Yeah. So a lot of people were, um, uh, you have a different grading system, but I called it like going for the gentleman's C. 
you know, which yeah. is like okay. just, well, I, just passing. Uh, yeah, I, I would, so I've got my, I have a piano exam coming up in a couple of weeks. I would go for, a, is it, what do you say, a gentleman's seat? Gentleman's seat. Yeah, I'd be, I'd be happy with that at this point. <laughs> it's my first piano exam in 32 years and I'm terrified by it. So a gentleman's seat would be, I think you'll do, you'll do, you'll do just fine. Yeah. Uh, let's talk about the platforms. Everyone's yeah. a favorite um, topic, um, you know, here in Cannes along the Quasette, a lot of people beating up on Google, beating up on Facebook. Um, it seems like for publishers, Google at this point is um, certainly a more benevolent dictator than Facebook. Fair? Uh, and discuss. Well, let me... Um, <laughs> I, so look, we, we've worked, I think, pretty closely with both Facebook and Google, those being the two main platforms over the last couple of years. And I think the, the conclusions I've come to are if news matters, and quality news, I guess, but news in general matters to the business... Uh, of, of one or other of those organizations, then you're going to have a constructive conversation with them. Um, and I suppose the other um, observation I would make is that you, you need to have, to get constructive with these platforms, you need to have three things aligned. You have to have the philosophy within that platform aligned. In other words, somebody within the organization in a very senior position needs to think and feel, actually, yes, news is important and we have a part to play in this. The second thing is you need the engineering and the product folk at those organizations to feel that there's a challenge that they can solve and that they can get stuck into. And the third is that you have to have the business side of those organizations aligned and they can understand how they, their business can progress through a constructive relationship. You know, Google make money pushing people around the internet. That's, that's how they make their, their money uh, and um, search, uh, sorry, news is a, is a very good way of moving people around the internet. So from a business point of view, I think Google can see uh, why news is important. I, I do feel that philosophically uh, at a very senior level within Google, they feel that having a sustainable uh, ecosystem for news is important. Uh, and I think from an engineering and product side, they can see how some of their work can solve some of the difficult challenges that the news industry has. So. Th those stars are aligned, I guess, in that sense. And our conversations with them have been very constructive um, over the last couple of years. There have been some policy changes. Um, first click free. First click free in particular, which gives publishers the right to monetize their journalism in the way that they want to. Uh, and also some product changes. Subscribe with Google, uh, I think, is a, is a you know, we're, we're yet to see uh, major results from it because we're just at a very, very early stage with it. Um, but it answers a lot of the questions we, we have, which is help our journalism get discovered, help it make, make it easy for customers to, to be, or for people to become a customer uh, of the FT with a single click, take some of the payment pain away from me, but let me have the, mm -hmm. the direct relationship retained and then surface that content mm -hmm. to those subscribers in, in a way that they can discover it. So, you know, we said to Google very explicitly, those are the things that are causing us problems. That's where our friction lies. And subscribe with Google, I think, is a really good mm -hmm. Um, composite way of approaching some of those difficulties. Today's sponsor is Airtable, the all-in-one collaboration platform. The digital landscape is constantly evolving, and for your content to break through, your publishing strategy needs to be adaptable. That's why when teams at Condé Nast Entertainment, BuzzFeed Studios, and Group 9 Media needed a tool to fine-tune their production process for the modern age, they turned to Airtable. With Airtable, you can build the collaborative, streamlined production process needed to take advantage of every viral trend. Everyone, try it today. Head to Airtable.com slash Digiday to receive $50 in free credits. 
I want to get to Facebook, but just sticking on Google, Google did rub a lot of people, a lot of publishers the wrong way with its approach to GDPR. Yeah. Um, what was your take on that? Uh, we have very constructive conversations with them around lots and lots of things, and Google are right through a, in a very deep way the entire ecosystem. So it is only natural that every now and then there are going to be things which you think, ah, you know, that, that irks a little bit. Um, I, I would say in the context Just of, like when diplomats say we had a full and frank exchange. Uh, well, I, what I would, <laughs> I, I would say in the context of GDPR, I think what, what was... It, you know, let's, let's wind the clock back to those weeks leading up to May the 25th. Yeah. It was a fairly fraught period of time for everybody in the industry, publisher side, technology side. I like the rush out. at the last minute. It makes me feel, yeah. as a procrastinator, it makes me feel better. Well, you know, I, I think one of the things that I found a little weird about it all was we'd been working on GDPR at the FT for two, two and a half years. And yet the crazy hectic three or four weeks for everybody that led up to it um, just made me think. Yeah. Um, you this know. is why you're going to do great on this piano exam. Well, so I am, I am in a serious cramming mode. If I could get my <laughs> F sharp minor harmonic scales right in the next couple of weeks, I'm definitely in, in cramming mode for that. So I think one of the frustrations that publishers had with Google around GDPR was that it was a kind of pretty heavy decision that landed pretty last minute. Uh, and you know, I think to give Google their credit subsequently, they have tried to engage with other parts of the ecosystem. They've tried mm -hmm. to say, how does this framework fit with, for example, the IB consent framework? Uh, and they've listened to publishers, they've made some changes. One of the concerns didn't really particularly bother us um, at the FT was that you could only list 12 um, vendors uh, for consent. And for many publishers, that's, that's hugely insufficient. Google have now said, okay, we'll take the cap off that so you can list as many as you like. So, you know, there, there, is, some, there is constructive conversation happening. But, it, you know, I think it's a difficult few weeks for the whole industry. Okay, and on to Facebook. Yeah. Because it's a little bit more fraught on the Facebook side. Yeah. Um, explain the relationship um, from the FT's standpoint. I'd say to, to go back to that, those three stars that I said yeah. needed to be aligned, philosophically, uh, products and technology and engineering uh, and business, there is seemingly less alignment, uh, it would appear to me, with, with Facebook right now. Um, I, I, th I think they feel that news is important to them. I think they're probably more under threat from fake news and the negative side uh, of what we broadly describe as, as news, and that's causing them problems. They've got the midterm elections coming up, and, and clearly and, and understandably, they're putting a huge amount of focus uh, on making sure that, that they come out of that without the, the accusations that followed the, the US elections um, some 18 months or so ago. So, you know, that, that does mean that we are not entirely necessarily aligned with one another. I'll, I'll also go back to the point I made around Google make their money pushing people around the internet, right? Um, Facebook don't. Facebook make their money by keeping you within the Facebook domain. Unless there is parity for publishers in terms of monetization, ad monetization and reader revenue monetization um, within the Facebook environment and Facebook ecosystem relative to uh, the monetization opportunity I have by having people on ft.com, um, then we're always going to have a difficulty. Mm -hmm. And so the product and the technology needs to ensure that that parity is actually coming up to scratch and that, that's not where we are right now. Yeah. Do publishers have, much, have enough leverage there or is it going to need to be changed on a governmental level? Uh, I would say that I have yet to see from the conversations that publishers are having with Facebook a meaningful change that I can point to on my bottom line that helps me in my role 
which is to create a sustainable source of revenue for FT journalism, to support FT journalism into the future. Uh, until such time, you could easily conclude that there is insufficient leverage because we're having the conversations, but there's nothing that, I, as I say, I can point to that says that that's, that's going to really help us out. Mm-hmm. So how much of your subscription business is corporate credit cards? Uh, so we have around about 938,000 paying readers. So yeah. I'll break that figure down for you. Uh, of that, around about 200,000 are in print. Of the remaining, what have we got, 750,000, something like that. For round numbers, about one-third of those are individual subscribers, about 235, 240,000 individual subscribers. So that's you or me getting our individual credit cards out. Yep. And about two-thirds, about half a million are corporate customers. So that's an HSBC or a Citibank or a Google um, saying we'll take a license to give access to a set number of people within our organization. Uh, if that organization or the, in- the employees within that organization uh, reach a certain level of engagement with our content, read a certain amount of articles, mm-hmm. visit over a certain amount of time, then we charge for them. So it's a, a license basis as you would for software, effectively. Yeah. So around about two thirds of our digital subscribers are from within corporate organization. So how does that change your strategy? Because I think a lot of people right now on the, a lot of publishers are on the consumer side who are going into um, the paid model. Uh, we see it in the US. But they're really two different um, models. There's, there's when when people are paying with their their corporate card, it's completely different. When I think when they're paying with their personal yeah. card, yeah, and, and I would fully recognize that the churn is different. The, the, I'm sure the, the churn is different. The cycle is different. I mean, these are annual licenses that we're talking about. You can buy a monthly individual subscription to to ft.com. So yeah, the the dynamics of that are different. There are some things which are common, and I think the the one singular thing I'd point to which is common, is that people will renew their subscription, corporate or individual, if there is engagement. And if you can mm-hmm. demonstrate that engagement back to people, and with our corporate customer base, uh, we make a, a, um, a, a go to great pains to ensure that those corporate organizations, the buyers within those who buy those corporate licenses, understand how many people are engaged and, and mm-hmm. to what extent. So the thing that unifies our B2C and our B2B business is this singular focus on an engagement metric. And every single one of our customers has an engagement score against their name, which is a combination of the recency of their last visit, how often they visit, their frequency, and the amount of content they consume when they, when they come to us. So and, that an correlates, and that correlates with the churn. Very directly. Yeah. Very directly. Because so, so I think a lot of publishers right now are, are, you know, they're feeling good about like, you know, how many people they signed up originally, um, you know, at the start, but they're not thinking about like the churn. Like, you know, someone gets to that fifth article, sure, they might, they might try it out, but like the churn rates are going to be pretty high, I'm guessing. Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, you know, churn, churn rates are going to differ for, for everybody, but I mean, if I, um, I think DigiDay probably, are, you know, beginning to experience the same kind of thing right um, i'm hoping that our churn this is what yeah, i'm asking but you but you you know your churn rate is going to be <laughs> is lower it that obvious if, if people value your product right, right? if you if people use your product and engagement is our proxy yes, that's that. what i tell jack all so, the time yeah so like so, let's not overthink it if people are using it like they're more likely if people are, to continue i think that so don't overthink <laughs> it exactly yeah okay so how about as a marketer because i mean you're also a marketer right mm. um so where are you putting your money to drive subscriptions uh, well, we're 
we, we spend a lot of money uh, engaging our existing customer base. It is frankly easier and more cost efficient to hold on to the subscribers that we have than it yeah. is to go and acquire new ones. But our businesses, uh, our marketing business is broadly split between the two, acquisition and retention. Uh, well over half of our budget goes on to retention programs, uh, CRM programs, and getting people to uh, understand the, all of the content that they haven't yet discovered. Um, but there's also a lot of work that we do on acquisition and in terms of the media budget that we spend, uh, we spend that probably around about um, two thirds of that on uh, display advertising and about a third of that on social platforms. Um, okay, so you're not dumping it all into Google and Facebook? Uh, a, a good chunk of our money good goes chunk. into Google and Facebook for sure. I mean, less of our money goes into Facebook in the US yeah. uh, in the last couple of months since Google have said, uh, Facebook have said that uh, any advertising that we place there has to be labeled as political advertising. Um, are you are not happy about that? No, we're not happy about that at all. And so you um, pulled advertising then? So we, we have pulled advertising from uh, Facebook in the US on that basis because. I think it is an extremely dangerous precedent for journalism as a whole to describe journalism as political advertising. It is not. Journalism is journalism and political lobbying is political lobbying. And, and to, mm -hmm. to conflate the two is an extremely dangerous precedent, particularly at this era uh, when there are so many question marks about news and the veracity of news. Yeah. So absolutely, yes, we pulled out and, and we are yet to be convinced that mm -hmm. Facebook are taking this issue seriously. It's hard, to, for us. It's hard to get into to, to motivations. I know one from Facebook is sadly in my apartment right now. Um, but what do you think the motivation is there? Because I talk with a lot of publishers and it really, really has rubbed them the wrong way. And this seems like an issue that they could have avoided this very easily. I, I, like I was just talking I, with, a, with a major publisher who's, who's, who pointed out that Facebook's own ads, you know, saying, you know, this is not fake news and stuff like this are not labeled that way or not yeah. in, you know, their gallery. Like why? Like yeah. why, why do it? Well, I, it has really, really rubs us, me, up the wrong way. So I'd completely agree with that. I, I think one of the problems, I guess there's two forces if I'm to look at it from Facebook's point of view. One is their primary concern is to get through the next round of US elections, the midterm elections, as I said earlier, without mm -hmm. having the finger pointed at them in the same way that it was uh, around misuse of their platform. So that is an overriding concern. Yeah. For That's Facebook, like Mark Zuckerberg right? wakes up and so, says, this yeah. cannot happen. So, so the list on Mark's fridge I guess, of things to do is yeah. number one is not let that happen. Okay. Right? Do not destroy democracy today. Yeah, don't, okay. don't destroy democracy today. So that, that's number one on his list. So, so I can see that. I think the other thing is if I look at platforms in general, the approach, it, it, it's predominated on, on scale, right? So scale is how their business works. And to get to scale, you need more one-size-fits-all policies and products than not. And I think this is a one-size-fits-all catch-all product and i think it need not be right you you it would not be difficult to establish a whitelist uh, of publishers whether they are members of trade organizations uh, mm -hmm. or other ways that prove to some extent at least as a start point well you know these people aren't political lobbyists these are legitimate yeah. news organizations i don't think that would be that difficult perhaps with the engineering time that they have i, I don't know i'm not going to speak for them uh, that hasn't been possible mm -hmm. for them but there is a solution here and it doesn't seem to me to be a uh, particularly difficult one to achieve uh, if you put enough time and effort into it. So we've talked a lot about, uh, about Google and Facebook. Is there too much focus on the duopoly when it comes to publishers? Uh, yeah. Yeah. I would say that there is. Yeah. I mean, you, you, you said earlier, you know, it's everybody's favorite topic in town. I'm a little bit over it, you know, yeah. it, to be honest with you. Um, the, uh, from a, as a point of discussion, I guess only because 
I think publishers would do well to focus on their own business, right? right? The more they're well, pointing it's a fingers scapegoat. at... It's yeah. a convenient scapegoat yeah. for not running um, I mean, there, there, there are problems there, yeah. without question. Uh, and, you know, these problems need addressing. You need meaningful engagement. There's a huge opportunity as well that can come from that meaningful engagement as well. And publishers clearly want to realize that, that opportunity. Um, but if it means that you're not looking enough at, at what's going on at home and... You know, the core to me is in the subscription business and in the advertising business, get people to come to your site and get them to love it. And that's about the product experience and that's about the quality of the journalism. Until such time as you have your product at a perfect state and your journalism, the best quality journalism you can produce, don't spend too much time looking elsewhere. I think fix the home front first. Yeah. Has Brexit and Trump helped uh, drive subscriptions? Yes, Brexit more so than Trump. Yeah, okay. Yeah. In fact, the lift in Brexit, uh, after Brexit in our subscription business was the one thing for me personally uh, that I could be happy about in the couple of weeks after that date. I'm not pro-Brexit at all. No, <laughs> okay. I'm, I'm highly anti-Brexit. All yeah. right. John, thank you so much. You're really welcome. Thanks for asking. And thank you all for listening. This podcast is produced by Aditi Sangal. If you liked our show, and I do hope you did, please subscribe. We're on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, and Anchor.fm. And while you're there, rate us and leave a review. Thanks again. We'll be back next week with another episode.